The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Buckets, Boards and Blocks with Monica McNutt and King McClure is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Monica is a former Georgetown Hoyer who likes nothing better than a three in transition and thinks DC ballers are the smartest. King is a former three and D Baylor baller whose idea of a good time is locking down the other team's best scorer. Monica, King, let's do this. Thank you, Darlene. Welcome to the best of Buckets, Boards, and Blocks. I'm Monica McNutt, and King McClure will join us in a minute. Our very first episode of BBB Pod dropped on April 11, 2019. Two years is rapidly approaching. I hosted the first 15 months or so solo, and then King joined us as a co-host in July of 2020. Along the way, we've done nearly 100 shows with influencers, journalists, broadcasters, current players, and legends. Hall of Famer Nancy Lieberman is one of them. She has done it all in basketball and was a pioneer in many areas. Growing up on the streets of New York and playing against the best men, yeah, I said men, at Rucker Park. Her game and her toughness set her apart. I was a poor kid uh, from a one-parent family, you know, growing up with no father and no food no electricity sometimes, no heat, and we were one grandparents away from food stamps. So what I was doing was very important to me. It was building my confidence, my self-esteem, my decision-making. And quite frankly, sports made me feel good about me. When they said, we'll pick the girl, that was almost like saying, you love me. And those are things that I was not getting at home. So everybody, as I mentioned, has something in their life. And I'm really grateful that sports filled a void because I could have joined the gang. I could have carjacked you. I could have, you know, I could have done, you know, been stealing and doing things that other kids were doing. But I, I, I fell in love with this game. And it is a great love story, by the way. It's, it's never abandoned me. It's never hurt me. It's only loved me, this game of basketball. And I'm trying to give that same love, um, same love back to the game. And you, you don't grow up wanting to be a Hall of Famer or an Olympian or a trailblazer or whatever those nice words are. I played basketball because it, it, it was fun. I was with friends. It made me feel good. And I hope every kid still does that. Gosh, you're, you're, you're so incredible. I'm just loving this conversation. As you talk about it, it is very simple. And I, too, subscribe to the idea that as long as you're true to the game, the game will be true to you as well. But now that you've gone into so many directions with the game, Nancy, whether it be coaching um, at the big three, the NBA, WBA, whatever it is, did you struggle to relate to other athletes at all? Because I find, right, like we talk about um, these elite achievers, which you are. Um, and then everybody is not as talented or not as driven or even as focused as you. Like, did you struggle in terms of what your demands were upon, amongst those that were in your circle? No, I, I keep it as simple as possible. Um, I'm just a, a normal person. I go out, I do my business. Um, 
you know, at that point in my life, I, all, my whole focus was just being a great basketball player. Um, where I am today, and, and, and I'm more of a minimalist, um, so the first part of my life I was learning, the middle part of my life I started to earn, and then at this part I'm returning. So it's learning, earning, returning, and that's how I've lived my life. And, you know, I was lucky because when I didn't have any supporters or female role models, you know, all my role models were African-American men. You know, Walt Frazier, Willis Reed, uh, Dr. J, and, and my ultimate hero, Muhammad Ali, those guys were the focal point of who I wanted to be. And it wasn't really until, you know, Ali and I met in uh, 79. Uh, we were both the athletes, ironically, making an appearance at the New York Stock Exchange for the Olympic Committee. It was a fundraiser. And Old Dominion had just won their first national championship and I was player of the year. And But Ali was my man. And I couldn't breathe when I was in the room with him. And it was crazy. I mean, my mom goes up to him and starts hugging him. Mr. Muhammad, you know, with her New York accent, my daughter is the, the greatest of all times. And he's like, look, lady, there's only one greatest of all time, and it's me. And she's like, no, I know you're good, but my daughter, she is the greatest. And he calls me over and he goes, your mom says you're the greatest. And I'm like, or he says, you know, your mom says you're really good. And I go, no, you know, and I was really, I couldn't even look at him because I was like shaking. And I go, no, Mr. Muhammad, you know, I'm not, uh, and I'm bumbling and stumbling. I go, I'm the greatest of all times. <laughs> and he looks at me and hugs me and he goes, there's two of us. And I'm like, yeah, 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 there's two of us. And I hit people too. And he goes, I'm going to ask you not to hit people. And what I said to him was, you hit people. He goes, I get paid to hit people. He goes, Nancy, you can't beat up everybody that hurts your feelings. I said, but they make me feel bad, Mr. Muhammad. They make fun of me and they tell me I'm stupid and dumb and I'm never going to make anything of myself. He goes, God made you special. He goes, there's something about you that's different. And I say, how do you know that? You know God too? Muhammad Ali knows God? <laughs> I was so stupid. Oh my gosh, I love that. Nancy Lieberman was known as Lady Magic back in the day. She even played for the Lakers Summer League team during her prime. And speaking of the Lakers, while the legendary Magic Johnson has a statue outside Staples Center, planning for the Kobe Bryant statue is moving forward. Kobe's life ended prematurely in January of 2020. The helicopter he was riding in with his daughter Gigi and seven friends crashed and everyone on board was tragically killed. J.A. Adande covered Kobe's whole career for the LA Times and ESPN. When he came on the pod, just a few days after Kobe's death, his emotions were still raw. What was that like for you when you got the news and it was verified? It was weird because like I, you know, it's definitely a where were you when moment, and it was interesting. Just this week turned out it was the anniversary of the, uh, the explosion of the space shuttle Challenger, and it's it, it was a similar tragedy, you know. And different generations have their moments. This will kind of be that moment for a number of people. Uh, but I, I remember discovering about the the Challenger exploding shortly after takeoff in 1986. And, you know, this was a case of getting out of the shower. I worked out, taking a shower it was a little after 2 p.m. Central time. And I pick up my phone and there's all these texts. And I just I can't specifically remember who and in what order and how. 
but I just see this jumble of, oh, my God, is it true? Kobe, oh, no, I'm so sad. Helicopter died. And, you know, I was just kind of able to assemble it. And then I, I think I went online and, and tried to read up on what happened. But it, it's just this blur, you know, because it was just this barrage of text messages, none telling the complete story. And I just kind of had to assemble it for myself. And so I, I, I just can't tell you specifically, you know, the moment it all crystallized. But, you know, once you realized it was true, Kobe Bryant had been killed in a helicopter crash. Uh, I, I was just numb. I, I couldn't, I couldn't reach out to anybody. I was really sort of negligent in in trying to contact people. It wasn't until a few hours later that I started contacting people with the Lakers and you know people who had worked to him, with him who were closer to him than I was, just to express condolences and see how they were doing. But I, I was just kind of numb and immobile. And then um, my phone rang, and it was ESPN calling to see if I could go on and do Sports Center. And I, I felt obligated. I felt a little honored. Um, you know, the people would think of me at that time. And I, I did feel an obligation because, you know, few people had spent as much time chronicling him as I had. And, um, you know, I, I, I just felt like I wanted to and needed to share those memories. And then I discovered over Sunday and Monday that the TV and radio and podcast appearances I did actually helped me. Uh, and they were the highlights of the day talking about Kobe going through my memories of Kobe actually put a smile on my face and mm-hmm. it was easier to go on and talk about and share than it was to sit alone in my thoughts. So the worst time, the worst moment for me was, was Monday morning, just waking up the day after. And that's when it felt real, you know, it didn't feel real on Sunday. And then I woke up Monday and it just hit me that he is gone. Mark Spears also knew Kobe well. Having covered his entire career for various newspapers, ESPN, and The Undefeated, he appeared on the show the week after J.A. and shared an observation about Kobe that was quite revealing. I just think it, it's amazing to me that he, he has so many friends <laughs> around the world, so many people that felt like they knew him, you know, even if they got two seconds with him, two minutes with him. Um, he was excellent at making you feel at home, even though you're meeting him for the first time. He he had several different, like, um, PR people, whether it was Lakers or his personally, that, you know, he um, would lean on. And as as you guys know, I'm sure, I'm sure over years Bruce has seen this a lot, when it, when it comes to, you know, star players, there's always somebody they got to meet after the game. Always somebody at the practice. Always CEO or CEO's kid or some musician or some star, somebody in politics or just just somebody who won a contest or on on sad occasions maybe it's a Make a Wish kid. But what Kobe did that was unique, and I and I saw it because I often my my whole thing with him was okay, I'm gonna catch him when he leaves the locker room like kind of walk with him as he's leaving so I can get some time with him after game. Um, sometimes I would have, uh, I would see somebody waiting for him and they were nervous. They were, uh, you know, knowing that Kobe was on his way and they wanted to be cool or, you know, they're excited. But when he would come out, he would always break the ice. 
and always ask them something about themselves, and you'd be see them be a little surprised, and then all of a sudden they they would relax, and um, Kobe would end up asking them more questions about them than they would ask about him. He probably figured they knew about him already, but I think he really truly believed you never know who you're meeting. You know, you, you never know who what that person is connected to or who they're you know, connected to, and perhaps that helped him in his post-basketball, you know, career, is that he he was always meeting people all the time, but giving them meaningful interaction, so I'm sure when they went back to doing what they were doing, if Kobe needed anything, they probably would um, jump to get it done, you know, Um he he just was special in that way, unique in that way. And I I think a lot of athletes, entertainers, people in our business, like, can take something from him in that. Like when uh, my, my sister calls me a, a, a D-list celebrity, but she also prefaces by saying it, but you're on the list, <laughs> right? That's but, like in, in the Bay Area specifically or, you know, several times around the country, you know, it's, ESPN gives you a platform. People will recognize me and want to say hi. And I, I feel like half of me, half of this is me personally, but half of it is I learned from Kobe. Like you just never know who you're meeting, who you're talking to. So I, I always will stop, say hello, and um, you know, it, it ain't thirty minutes or nothing, but at least I'll stop and acknowledge him and thank him for for liking my work, for reading my work, for caring about my work. And, you know, that's how I think he he just personally, like, connected with a lot of people. In many ways, Kobe Bryant's role model was Michael Jordan. When MJ spoke at Kobe's memorial service, the whole world stopped to listen. When COVID-19 brought the NBA to a halt in March 2020, a basketball-starved public needed something to sustain it until play resumed. That's something was provided by none other than MJ. The Last Dance on ESPN aired each Sunday from April 19th through May 18th. Two journalists that were interviewed for the show were Andrea Kramer and David Aldridge. Both covered MJ during the glory days for ESPN and were witnesses to basketball greatness. Here's DA on the pod. How <laughs> many hours of interviews did you do for that show? Uh, it was about, I'm gonna say it was about two and a half hours, I think, when it was all said and done. Um, they came to D.C. last last fall sometime. I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was last fall. And um, met them at a hotel here. And um, I thought it was, you know, I actually thought, you know, I was, I think I was one of the last interviews they did. So I thought it was going to be like, you know, they were going to ask me like a half hour's worth of questions to just fill in the blanks of some things they, they didn't have sound for, which was fine with me. I didn't mind that. But um you know, they really went in depth. They really wanted a lot of detail about, about you know, particular seasons and particular games. And so it was, uh, it was, uh, it was nice to do. It was good to do. I didn't, I didn't think I was going to be on as much as I've been on so far, to be honest with you. But, um, you know, happy to, uh, happy to help them out. Um, I think everybody who's followed the league knows the kind of urban legend of all the, all the film that, uh, NBA Entertainment shot that last year, and I know guys that work for NBAE that have, you know, lamented that 
that that film would never see the light of day and they were they really wanted to have some place to show it and it's gone through a lot of iterations over the years and I'm just glad they finally figured out a way to to do it and to uh let people see some get some real behind the scenes footage that that nobody else would have seen otherwise. Um so in 98 you were with who? I was with ESPN in 98. Okay, got it. So you so obviously you were present for the ride. <laughs> mhm. <laughs> I was in a lot of games that year, yeah. I was in Chicago a lot that year. <laughs> what? So you know how the saying goes when you're talking with your aunts, uncles, whatever. At over yeah, time, the old people. It's okay. Yeah, I didn't say that. Yeah, you said that. But you, okay, so we have this notion that like legend grows, right? Um, mm-hmm. This is a really interesting DA to to watch, and particularly after episode six, where we divulge into the Republicans buy sneakers two comment. But we've had yeah. this crowd who has argued that Mike is on defense. We had that piece in the New York Times and that he's defending his legacy against LeBron, which I think is kind of asinine personally, but he's an elite competitor. Then we get into this piece of Mike and whether or not he should or should not have been an activist. Do you, th- do you make anything of the timing of this thing coming out? Um, you know, I think if it, it would have come out, I mean, there would have been this debate at any point. You know, mm-hmm. if whenever he decided to cooperate and go on the record about, you know, Republicans by sneakers too and, and all that, what whatever he said would be dissected. Um, and look, you know, going back before 98, I mean, there were always people who were saying that Mike needed to do more, needed to be out front, needed to be a, uh, a, a public advocate for causes beyond basketball, um, needed to speak out, you know, and so going back to Harvey Gantt, you know, in 1990, uh, there was all kinds of talk. There was always talk about that. Um, you know, at the time, I kind of shared that view, Monica, I'll be honest. I kind of thought, well, you know, he's Michael Jordan. What, what could they do to him? You know, if he speaks out on something, it's not like they're going to take his shoe contract away. You know, and so I kind of, I certainly shared that view. But what happens is that as you get older, <clears throat> you know, and I say this is as somebody that, that was there for a lot of it, um, you know, you, you, your, your worldview changes a little bit. And, you know, I have come to accept the fact that everybody can't be what you want them to be. You know, I mean, you just can't, you can't make people live life the way you want them to live life. You know what I mean? So um, Mike does things that nobody knows about. And I kind of respect that because I, I was raised with that whole notion that you know, if you do something nice for somebody, you you don't call a press conference to tell everybody about it. You just do it. Some viewers saw The Last Dance as giving MJ all the credit while glossing over some of his shortcomings. But even athletes less famous than MJ are now able to control the narrative of their own stories. That is simply the price that filmmakers will pay in order to do a project with someone like Michael Jordan. Here's Andrea Kramer with Monica. How close to the truth? did you kind of see, perceive the documentary to be? I, I got to tell you one one little story here before, uh, so I don't forget it. And this is not like an obnoxious name dropping thing. So please don't take it that way. I was, talking to, I, I was talking to Phil Jackson last week, just about, you know, kind of catching up and getting his um, his thoughts on it. And, you know, the, the thing that he, first thing that came to mind for him, which with which I completely concur is it's an homage to Michael. No question. Mm -hmm. But he said, 
there's been a couple of things that he just he disagreed with what certain people remembered and i said to him i said to phil i said you know what it's like with our kids it almost doesn't matter what happened it only matters what they remember and uh there's just there so there's a couple of little things and and phil wasn't you know wasn't upset about it or anything like that he's just he he, w- he told me that he was texting with michael about it and he said you said this and I didn't remember this isn't this isn't what happened. So there's look, it's always going to be a recollection. And Monica, it always is. It, this is obviously the opportunity for people to rewrite their their own narrative, rewrite their their own history. I, I will say this. Um, and just just so so people understand and you you alluded to this uh in, in your lovely introduction of me, but I'm so associated with the NFL now, but people forget that when I joined ESPN in 1989 and opened their Chicago Bureau. I was covering the NBA nonstop. So I did the Pistons first two championships and then Jordan's championships. And, um, you know, one of the things that, that I, I am extremely proud of is to have been there with Jordan and the Bulls through the good, the bad and the ugly, uh, mm-hmm. which means that, yeah, you're there through the playoff losses and of course the wins and the championships, but your I was also in that media scrum when he came back from Atlantic city after gambling. And, and I went down to North Carolina and covered his testifying in the slim Buller trial and schlepped to Birmingham and covered him with the Barons. And probably, you, you know, Bruce may or may not remember this, but uh, probably the biggest story that I ever broke at ESPN was Jordan coming back. And then I did the first interview with him when he did come back. And uh, one of those reasons is because I was around all the time and, and I was there through the good and the and the not so good. So I really uh, that's why the last dance people came to me. I mean, you have no idea how much you're going to be in it. I mean, they had said to myself and our mutual good friend, one of my dearest friends, David Aldridge, who I had the pleasure of you know, quote unquote, presenting when he was inducted into the, to the Naismith Hall of Fame. But, you know, Jason Hare, uh, the director basically wanted David and me to provide the journalistic narrative. Wow. And I think that that's what we were able to do throughout the throughout the um, throughout the documentary. One I, I got early on after one of the early episodes, I got a really interesting email from a sports editor who said, I've been enjoying your commentary and, and I, don't, I, I do not in any way want this to come off self-serving, <laughs> please, please, please. But he said, you're the only, you seem to be the only voice, journal, only journalistic voice that's not associated with Michael's PR team. Mm-hmm. And the same that could be said of David. I told y'all that I joined Buckets, Boys and Blocks in July of 2020. On my second show, my little bro from college, Jared Butler dropped in. At the time, he was deciding whether to play another year at Baylor or go into the NBA draft. Jared told us on that show that he had done more than 20 Zoom meetings with NBA teams that were thinking about him. As an All-American point guard, I asked him about his approach. What do you do as a point guard in order to get your team back focused and locked in? Oh, that's a great question. I think um, as a point guard, you got to almost – uh, act in a way and uh, give off a certain vibe whenever you're doing going through the motions or you know doing things at, at practice and, and and the way you walk on the bus the way you you know approach layup lines like you got to give off this vibe that uh, you know it's a clean slate like basketball is a game of just uh, you know forgetting on to the next play type mentality 
And uh, I think as a point guard, you have to, you have to, in a way, act uh, uh, and, and understand that fact about basketball. And I think that can uh, translate to other people and people feel the same way. And in return, we, we realize that it's a tournament, it's a new game. It's a new game, new opportunity and a chance for us to uh, show something that we didn't show in the last game. So I think that's something as a point guard you can do. What would you say, Jared, for people scouting you? If you had to scout yourself, what's the strength of your game? <laughs> mm, yeah. Well, wait, can I answer this first? Let me answer this sure. first. Good point. Good point. You got what Let me the answer this first. So if I was to scout Jared Butler, I'm initially taking away the three. Initially, I'm taking away the three, okay? Uh-huh. I'm telling my, my, my defender to not bite for any of the side-to-side fakes. Just stay solid because Jared, Jared's type play, he wants to shift you. If he gets any ability to shift you, then he sees the lane and he can attack, okay? So that's right. I'm making Jared a driver. And Jared, I mean, he finishes well, but his three ball is deadly. So we're getting to the point where I'm making Jared a, a driver. And to be honest, I'm really making Jared a pull-up shooter because I'm making him shoot a pull-up too. So I'm taking away the three, and I'm going to have a big – in the paint, ready for him at all times, and try to make him shoot pull up twos because he really does not shoot that many pull up twos. But no. his pull up three and his getting to the cup, getting to the rim, be able to draw contact is elite. Hold on, pull up. How accurate was that? Coming off the screen on the three or just catch a Look, shoot? It don't even matter. He <laughs> catches shoot, pull up off the the ball screen, coming to ISO, getting separation. Jerry just gonna he's gonna pull the three. Okay, so King. <laughs> Gave his little scout report. He make you do the old school uh, <laughs> pull up uh, in the paint. What you got? Yeah, I think I can. I could agree with King a lot. Uh, but what what I see as a defender, if you're telling me what I have to do, uh, if you know my game, one of my favorite moves is like the the hezzy. So like it's almost like a I can either yeah. shoot or go to the goal. And yeah. when you tell the defender take away the three then that means you're susceptible to just falling from my head every single time because, you know, I, I'm willing to shoot three every time. So uh, I think that's a problem where where you – in your scouting report. But, yeah, I think I definitely real one on uh, making me a driver and taking away the three because I do think the threes are, are worth more than two, so I'm going to take more threes. And uh, so <laughs> that's kind of my philosophy on it. But I also think I'm, I'm very good at uh, making plays out of, out of nothing and uh, being able to always create and always get past my defender if I need to be. And that's either to make a shot for somebody else or make a shot for myself. And uh, also I can play defense. Like most people don't think I can play defense, but in time, (laughs) time, people, I've gotten gotten a lot of credit for being able to play defense. And uh, so, yeah, I'm trying to, I'm not trying to change the narrative. The narrative is what the narrative is, but the, the perception, trying to change the perception of me being able to play defense. When Jerry decided to return to Waco for his junior year, nobody was happier than his head coach, Scott Drew. Now, King also played for Coach Scott Drew, and you know I wasn't going to allow him to come on the podcast without fishing for a comment on King. What was it like 
coaching this guy. Because anytime we have our former basketball teammates or coaches on, he always gives me the blues. So I need all the dirt. <laughs> well, first of all, if, if everybody coached more players like King McCord, there'd be a ton of coaches out there because he was a true blessing to coach. Always had a great attitude, always came to work and was a great teammate. Um, seriously, King was one of our all-time favorites and uh, uh, can't speak uh, uh, more highly about him as a, a person, a player, a teammate, a man. And um, love him to death. And uh, uh, I know it's a blessing for you guys to work with him, too. So, uh, uh, by the way, I do have a question for you. What are you doing this Saturday? <laughs> Thanks, Coach. You know, I'm just celebrating not quite the 5-0. I'm turning 31, but shout out to October birthdays, King, yourself, myself. Bruce, you're not in the club. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah but my son, my son turned 32 days ago. Oh, okay. Wow. There you go. It's a big so, one. Big so we're, we're, we're semi in a club. Okay. There you go. That, um, Carry on. That, answer, that answer on King did not give me the dirt that I needed. But <laughs> hopefully we get into a little bit more trash talking because Jarrett was on the pod with us a while back. And I think they got a little bit into it, which I loved. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. Because Drew, let's start. I've never asked you this question personally. So I always wanted to ask you this. What made you want to take the job at Baylor? knowing everything that was going on at the time? Well, great question. Uh, uh, as you know, King, uh, um, uh, our program is based on uh, uh, our faith in our Lord and Savior. And biggest thing is I prayed about it and I felt led to come here. So uh, when God says go, uh, uh, that's what we do. And uh, when we got here and realized how much work we had, we uh, then then had to talk to God some more. But, <laughs> but as you know, uh, uh, it's been a blessing being here. So many great players over the years, so many great relationships. Um, all three of my uh, children were born here. And uh, uh, this has definitely been home. And uh, again, because of players like yourself, it's been a special place. Man, Coach, that – so what was – I mean, obviously, we love a good faith-based, a driven and led man. But when you had that conversation with your dad or even your brother, even yeah. your wife, because you come yeah. from a coaching family, and obviously basketball yeah. is huge. You love the game. Um, but it certainly was an uphill climb. I mean, what were yeah. the people in your circle asking you as you were um, moving toward making that decision? Well, and, and that's – I'm blessed because I have a family that uh, uh, understands athletics. Uh, uh, my dad's uh, uh, been in it all his life, actually inducted in the College Basketball Hall of Fame. And um, uh, my mentor, and, and not only my dad, but uh, someone that's helped me along the way in everything I've done basketball-wise. And then my brother has a great perspective uh, playing uh, uh, for us and, and playing six years in the league. And um, the one thing that uh, uh, we thought about was when my dad went to Valpo, they never had a winning record in uh, Division One, And at the time, Digger Phelps was coaching Notre Dame. It's like, you can't go there, Homer, because uh, nobody's going to win there. It's a dead-end job. Um, and a lot of similarities uh, with Valpo and, and with Baylor, both of them uh, Christian schools, both of them family-type atmospheres, both of them not as much tradition and history, and an opportunity to build something. And um, that does appeal to players like uh, uh, King. He got to stay close to home. Uh, he got to build something that uh, uh, one day his kids can see uh, uh, the banners that he helped put up and what uh, he helped accomplish at uh, Baylor University. And uh, I, I love a challenge. I know our players have loved a challenge, and uh, um, that attitude has allowed us to be successful. One of the areas this show has always covered is the WNBA, because, duh, I'm a woman baller. We've also done many segments on social issues, racism, and how to move our society forward. 
The Atlanta Dream franchise of the WNBA was recently purchased by a group that includes a former player and friend of the show, Renee Montgomery. Renee and members of the team have been at the forefront of the battle against injustice and have made significant impact. Before Renee and her group brought the team, one of the owners was former Georgia Senator Kelly Leffler, who angered the players by not being supportive of Black Lives Matter. She called it divisive. In a remarkable display of players defying ownership and unity, members of the Dream used their WNBA platform to actively support Leffler's opponent in the Senate runoff election, which took place in January 2021. Katie Barnes of ESPN joined the show the next day and had some incredible context. Kelly Loeffler is more than just a senator that was appointed by Brian Kemp um, following uh, the retirement of another Georgia senator. She also is a co-owner of the WNBA franchise, The Atlanta Dream, um, which she has been involved with uh, initially starting in 2010 and then taking over as um, majority co-owner with Mary Brock in 2011. Uh, so. She owns a WNBA team, and uh, if anyone has been paying attention to the W in over the last three years or so, uh, they've been really outspoken on a number of issues. Um, and Kelly Loeffler decided, um, as a part of her political campaign, that she was going to run really hard to the right, and you know came out and said some pretty inflammatory things about Black Lives Matter in particular. I'm um, in the middle of uh, the uprisings and protests that occurred after the death of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd this summer. And in response, uh, the players of the WNBA, including her own team, donned Vote Warnock shirts um, and really made it very clear that they were in favor of her losing her Senate seat. And that really, I mean, you know, I think it's important to note that at the time, Warnock was polling in the single digits behind another Democratic um, uh, candidate, um, Lieberman, he was like at 9%. And he came back, made it through that uh, primary, which is called the jungle primary, meaning it's just a big primary um, that when the top two go on to uh, compete in a head-to-head -head matchup in the special elections, which was resolved last night and called early this morning. So it has been a wild few months. The W is pretty front and center the whole time. Oh. Oh my God, I'm, I am so proud. Like, I know there were so many people tweeting today, Black women to the rescue again and again and again. And I don't want to trivialize that because this to me, Katie, was so strategic by the W. I do remember when Loeffler's statements came down and there were some questions about whether or not Kathy Engelbert, the commissioner, could exert power and cause her to either lose her part, her ownership in the dream or whatever the case may be. Ultimately, a leadership did not go that, that way. But what do you think it is that allowed these women to lock in and go this route in terms of taking a stance? You know, the what I think is so interesting about the W is that when you look at just in general, the rise of athlete activism over the course of the last four years, going back to, I think, 2016, um, where we saw the Minnesota Lynx um, come out in, you know, against police brutality. And then, of course, that fall, Con Kaepernick started kneeling. I think that's really when, you know, we had just a true, like, moment for athletes that has just been building, is that the players in the W have been, like, front and center and leading on this issue, on these issues, not just in terms of the things that they say, but really about the stuff that they do. Like, so for me, this isn't just about, you know, 
yeah, the Atlanta Dream and everybody in the W wore vote Warnock shirts and then he won. Like, no, they organized, they campaigned. They very much made a concerted effort to go out and put something in action that they believed in. And whether or not you agree with that stamp, with that stance, like to me, that's really powerful that this group of people, you know, really took a stance and mobilized to make that happen. And we haven't seen that level of collective action uh, when it comes to activism and organizing uh, on the part of athletes. I, I really, I'm hard pressed to say ever. I mean, I think the closest thing would be some of the actions that were taken in the 60s um, by athletes uh, that were pretty, you know, significant. I don't mean to minimize, you know, the impact um, there, but, you know, in terms of a, just a collective entity doing something like this, like to me, that is really what stands out. Um, it's been, I think, really interesting to watch from a reporting perspective, but it's been really powerful in terms of just like the impact that people can have when they want to. Like these aren't wealthy people, you know, like nobody's out here with like LeBron James money. Like this was just blood, sweat and tears and like real organizing. Um, and in that sense, I think it's really inspiring. We are also inspired by the courage of our WNBA queens. They are role models for not just young girls, but for all of us who want a more just society. Thanks for checking out the best of Buckets, Boards and Blocks. Thanks to our producer, Bruce Bernstein, and our editor, Kristen Woolley. Please keep wearing your mask and do not let up. We're going to be COVID-19 if we stick together, but we're not done. For my co-host, Monica McNutt, I am King McClure, and I am stealing her line. Until next time, I've always wanted to say this, y'all. Enjoy your hoops. Buckets, Boards and Blocks with Monica McNutt and King McClure is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.